So for the summertime, we're going to get comfortable, kind of stretch out the way Wayne is stretched out in the fourth pew here with a whole pew to himself. Um, in the book of Acts, we're going, uh, it feels like such an appropriate time to learn from the early church. Not as often is the case out of a sense of nostalgia, you know, so many churches say, ah, if the church could just be like the early church, forgetting that all of our correspondence from Paul is to the early church that had deep problems, right? So uh, let's not romanticize the early church. But it really is remarkable and inspiring to look back at how in just a short amount of time this haphazard group of people were being assembled after a traumatic season. Following the death and resurrection of Jesus, which involved seeing their friend, their mentor, their teacher, their hope, their Messiah, murdered by the state, after they fleed, after they went on lockdown, after they feared for their own lives, and after they likely calibrated and recalibrated their futures several times, they met Jesus again in a new way. They met the past and present and future, the Alpha and the Omega, when they met Jesus with nail marks on his hands and a uh, scar on his side and even the little dots where the crown of thorns had been pressed into his head. They met the new and reigning king who now rules by suffering and sacrifice and victory over death. Within transpires is that Jesus must go to be with the Father, and when he leaves, he takes something of them, he takes something of all of us with him. This is now a, a full and true human sitting at the right hand of the Father, listening to our prayers and offering to God for us, not someone who can't sympathize with us, not someone who's never suffered, who's with God for us. But Jesus also left something behind, and if we're going to be more accurately, Jesus left someone behind, an advocate, a paraclete, one who would come alongside of us, this common spirit who penetrates our difference and opens us up and out to God and to each other. We're we're kind of reclaiming terms here, and I don't know if, if Pentecostal is damaged for you, but in some sense, we're all Pentecostals when we're filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit opens us out to a multi-ethnic and multicultural and everything that that means type of church, type of people of God. The picture painted here is not black and white, but is technicolor. Dude. Do, do you remember those those old TV shows that just must have, uh, I'm not this old, but I, I'm getting old for Oak Church standards, but the, it must have just in the span of a season or two gone from a black and white universe with Wally Cleaver and all these guys to the Technicolor, even more real color of the Brady Bunch. And that this all just happened in the span of a few years, almost overnight. And this is what the resurrection of Jesus is doing to this community that is opened out to this vibrant panoply of colors. God is making the world over right under our noses and is calling us to join in. 
So with that, I'm going to continue our reading from last Sunday in Acts 2, uh, starting in verse 22, going to 41. This is after Peter's speech uh, from the prophet Joel. And he continues, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene was a man whose credentials God proved to you through miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed through him among you. You yourselves know this. In accordance with God's established plan and foreknowledge, he was betrayed. You, with the help of wicked men, had Jesus killed by nailing him to a cross. But God, those are the two most powerful words in scripture, but God raised him up. God freed him from death's dreadful grip since it was impossible for death to hang on to him. David says this about him. I foresaw that the Lord was always with me because he was at my right hand. I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my body will live in hope because you won't abandon me to the grave nor permit your Holy One to experience decay. You have shown me the paths of life and your presence will fill me with happiness. Brothers and sisters, I can speak confidently about the patriarch David. He died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this very day. But he was a prophet. He knew that God promised him with a solemn pledge to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Having seen this beforehand, David spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he wasn't abandoned to the grave, nor will his body experience decay. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses to that fact. He is exalted to God's right hand and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He poured out this spirit, and you are seeing and hearing the results of his having done this. David didn't ascend into heaven, yet he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel know beyond question that God has made this Jesus, this Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the crowd heard this, they were deeply troubled. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what sh- Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Change your hearts and your lives. Each of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God invites. With many other words, he testified to them and encouraged them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. God brought about 3,000 people into the community on that day. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be God. So here we get another speech from Peter. The first one was, again, that 
proclamation that Joel's prophecy was coming true, that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, if the main gift that folks received at Pentecost was the Holy Spirit in some sort of divine Google translatability where they could hear languages that weren't their own and know what the heck was going on, Peter received some slightly different wild ability to know what was going on and how to say it. To point to the this and say, yeah, that's indeed that. (laughs) Sure, he'd been walking with Jesus and asking questions and deeply listening, but that didn't help him know. That didn't make him wise. It didn't, like, sure up his zeal and enthusiasm and protective instinct into something more Jesus-like than cutting off a soldier's ear in the garden. Or it didn't, you know, make him courageous enough not to own up to having known Jesus when they asked him not once, not twice, but thrice, if they knew this man, he said, no, not me, not him. But now, Peter was the one who was set to feed Christ's sheep. And part of feeding Jesus' sheep means knowing and telling that this is that. Luke's, uh, Luke Acts scholar, Kevin Rowe, one of my teachers, reminds us, The reference to Jesus' ragtag crew that is forming in the book of Acts, the literal Greek talks about them and says that they are, quote, illiterate idiots, Peter included. That they are illiterate idiots. And so it's no small thing when Peter goes in on it and announces declaratively, You, with the help of wicked men, had Jesus killed by nailing him to the cross. God raised him up. God freed him from death's dreadful grip since it was impossible for death to hang on to him. Peter is saying this is that. This is what is happening. This feels a lot like the revelatory scene in most movies. You know the ones um, where it all comes down to the person least likely to, to articulate exactly what the the hero can't see the whole time, you know? Uh, Every insight, therefore, is a gift from God, even for illiterate idiots, even for literate idiots like us, right? If it can work in Peter, who's a sort of stand-in for the church, it can work for us, too. So many of us are so intimidated by the prospect of having to do what the letter from Peter says that we should do to revere Christ in our hearts as Lord and always be prepared to give a defense or an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. It says do that with gentleness and respect. That gets left off sometimes. We think we need to know more. We think, especially... If we've studied theology, or if you, like me, are a master of divinity, we think now that we know more that it's very complicated and we can't speak authoritatively on all these things. But let's not forget, Peter only knows what he's seen and what he's experienced and what he's felt and what he's been told. Peter's knowledge and his boldness boils down to how Christ has been for him. 
how Christ has been for him, especially after a traumatic season, after a season where all he wanted was for things to get back to normal, and he didn't know if that normal could ever exist again. And in some ways, that old normal cannot exist. Peter knows guilt and shame. He knows the guilt of being complicit in Jesus' death. He knows the shame of having left his friend at his time of need. But Peter also knows new life. He knows new life because death isn't the last word. He got to talk to Jesus again. Life is now the last word. Resurrected, eternal, full, overflowing life. And while I doubt Peter, even in this speech, understands that all the, the, like, what is entailed with this truth that he's proclaiming, like, stay tuned throughout the summer as Peter progressively begins to understand what all he's saying means. He's committed to learning and living all of this out loud. So here's a challenge this week. Say my sermons aren't practical. Consider this week with a, with a housemate or a spouse or a friend or a work, like a coworker or a child, like your own child, consider sharing something about who Christ is for you. Even if you do this clumsily, it's in that telling that we learn to articulate and to embrace, to embrace Christ's work and to let the Spirit use us to share the good news. So don't worry. <laughs> Again, we'll reclaim this. Don't worry if you don't feel like an evangelizing type or if you don't feel equipped because neither was Peter. But the Spirit is with us and the Spirit is guiding us and the Spirit is showing us when this is that and how to put it all together, all these disparate pieces. On this... this uh, Sunday that we're in right now, sometimes known as Memorial Weekend, sometimes known as Trinity Sunday. More informally, in the church world, this is known as Associate Pastor Sunday, where the main preacher <laughs> goes on early summer vacation and pawns the theological triangulation off on the bullpen, right? But you get me today. Uh, our good news to tell, though, on this Trinity Sunday with Peter is that, and I'll quote, that this is the Jesus who God raised up. And we're all witnesses to this fact. He was exalted to God's right hand and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He poured out this Spirit, and you are seeing and hearing the results of his having done so. So, Friends, let's open our eyes this week to seeing the results of Jesus who sits at the right hand of God the Father pouring out his Holy Spirit on us in this world. Do you see, do you see the Trinitarian logic that is working that, that is right in front of us if, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear? So we, even now, even still, are seeing and experiencing the unveiling of the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The unleashing of resurrection power in, as we sang earlier, I love, I love Father, let your kingdom come. And I love the, the bridge that says that God is making all things new in places that we don't choose. 
This is the story of the Acts of the Apostles, or the better yet, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's still happening now. God is making all things new in places we don't choose. That means we have hope in a new way, but it also means that we can see suffering in a new way, that we can have our imaginations enlivened to look out into the world. Instead of being fearful of suffering, we see God at work in it. This doesn't make us have a martyr complex, but it just opens us up to the fact that there is always more going on than we can see or know, and that this is that. I think of how well artists and poets and songwriters do this kind of this is that work with eyes open to, to what we're, how what we're experiencing has greater context, uh, no less context than what is happening now, but much more than what's happening now. It's always more. It's never less. I think of uh, our friends from the uh, Porter's Gate Worship Project, and they put out a, an album of laments last year, and they reconfigured the old Holy Week hymn, O Sacred Head Once Wounded, to have a vision for how the suffering and death of black men in our country of George Floyd in particular, is not forgotten or forsaken by God, but is, is called into this sacred life in this sacred world. It's, it's uh, in the song, how they, they reconfigured it, shows how, how this uh, one man's suffering is included inside of the suffering of Christ. Not in place of it, not over and above it, but inside of Christ's suffering. I think of the, all those, those uh, Ruo um, paintings that say Jesus Christ will suffer for eternity, right? And, and, and that that's really sounds morbid and dark, and all the, the paintings are gray tones. But, but what that is saying is every place where there is suffering, it participates inside of Jesus' suffering. And that's good news because that also means that our suffering and the suffering of our neighbors also participates in Jesus' hope for resurrection. That, that they wrote, O sacred neck now wounded, pressed down by blows and knees, the son of God surrounded by silent enemies. Will no one stop and listen? Will no one rise and speak of violence and oppression which hanged you from the tree? You can see this equation, this this is that, and it's not a, a one-to-one, but it is an analogy that opens up and awakens our current world to God's big, divine, ongoing plan. You see the Petrine logic to this? in a way that doesn't close down the story, but opens it up, that brings about participation, not because, not just because Jesus rose, died and rose once upon a time, but because he still is. He's still suffering, and he's still raising up from death, and raising us up from death. Quote, Jesus poured out his spirit, and you are seeing and hearing the results of him having done so. Still. So where does all this cash out? For Peter, it's that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's his thesis statement. That's P 
period at the end of it. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'm not sure we feel the gut punch that Peter's hearers felt when he dropped that rhetorical bomb on them, right? There are way too many t-shirts and tracks that say Lord and Christ that we don't understand how big of a deal that statement is. That brought about, it said, when he said that to them, it said they all felt a deep trouble. <laughs> a deep trouble, not let's rush to the gift, gift shop so that I can put that bumper sticker on my car. A deep trouble, maybe like John Lewis would say, a good trouble that, that Peter's hearers felt. Now this statement becomes, uh, you know, uh, it, it, we're tempted to make this statement a lever, like, have you made Jesus your Lord in Christ today to get someone in? And that's not necessarily always bad, but it, it can't be in a manipulation. Peter's hearers were troubled because the gospel, as Willie Jennings says, always has in it a message that flows directly out of a divine propensity for disruption. So they were troubled because they were disturbed. The world, how they had it set up, had just been knocked over by that statement. This Jesus whom you crucified was both Lord and Christ. This means they had to think of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Ruth, and David, and Isaiah, who they used to think was great, but really far away. This God was near. This God is here. The creator, the deliverer, the almighty, the fill in the blank with your favorite title for God from any psalm or worship song or hymn, was one in the same with this crucified man who is now raised and in charge. Jesus, adjust your lives accordingly. So there's a refreshingly earnest question that they ask. What should we do about it? What should we do about it? And Peter says, repent. Change your hearts and lives account for this new information reset your expectations and hopes give yourself to this new work immerse yourself in this new life dive deeply into this new reality practice resurrection be baptized into jesus's death so that you can be raised to this new and lasting life for those who haven't been baptized We'll do that for you. <laughs> we will get you wet. God has troubled the waters, so get in the waters. It's scary at first, but they feel fine. Our heater doesn't work anymore, and, and, and Gary couldn't keep his feet on the ground, but he came out of those baptismal waters, right? For those who have been baptized, remember your baptisms. Every time you touch water, remember your baptism. I, I love... Again, speaking of this is that people, I love people like uh, Cole Arthur Riley, who does black liturgies, does such a good job of this and that, where, where she says this current event is brought into the life of God in this particular way. Or I love um, uh, Tish, 
Harrison Warren has a book called uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, where she talks about these normal things, losing our keys as a liturgy of repentance, having an argument with our spouse as uh, an act of reconciliation, taking a bath as a baptism, right? Uh, again, not always meant literally, maybe more figuratively, but a way that immerses us in this vibrant God life. So if you have been baptized, remember, every time you touch water, remember your baptism. Walk in newness of life. I got to see a little picture of this this week, and Junie got on me. He says, you always mention James in sermons. You never mention me, and he's giving me all these quotes that I can't use. They're in my phone somewhere. Maybe I'll use them one day, but they're probably not sermon quotes. Uh, but we got to go to the beach this past week. Junie's never been to the beach. I grew up basically with salt water running through my veins, living a couple blocks from the ocean in Daytona Beach, Florida. And sometimes the majesty of the sea is just lost on me. It was a beautiful thing to see Junie, though. He went in just the span of a couple hours from, I don't know if I'm going to take off my shoes and socks, and that ocean, these are quotes, and that ocean is big, who knows what's swimming with it, fair point, <laughs> to literally pulling him out of the water and saying, bro, let's go. Our parking is run out, and we got to get home for dinner because he was exhilarated. He had jumped in. He had basked in. He had swam around. He let the water carry his weight. He was immersed in this new, beautiful all-encompassing reality that he had just found. So that's the invitation. That if Jesus is one that we've crucified, we've had some s small part that's not all that small, but cumulatively, in Jesus being crucified, Jesus dying and bearing this massive weight of the world's sin, this is the invitation. Jesus, the crucified one, is both Lord and Christ. So turn to him, jump in with all your fears, all your hopes, all your hurts, and swim around in this gift. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you open up your life to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is so much going on before we ever even were awake to any of it. This whole life of community and grace and love and joy waiting for us to jump in. We thank you for um, giving us insights and words and, and uh, teaching us about what this life is and can be. Keep lining our, our lives up with this big, real abundant life. Amen.